Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Of all the questions that I get asked, the most frequently asked has to do with the theme music. What is it called? Who wrote it? And where can I listen to the song in its entirety? I know I've answered this question once or twice before in the podcast, but it's been a while, I know, too. So here goes again. The most notorious theme song is called The Executioner's Rag, and it was written by a a really great guy named Todd Purley, who lives in New Orleans. And when I was starting this podcast back at the end of 2015, my gosh, it's already been almost four years, huh? Uh, And looking for a theme song, I knew I wanted something that sounded dark, and I wanted something ragtime. So I remember searching on YouTube for a ragtime piece in a minor key, and this came up, The Executioner's Rag. I watched Todd perform it, and you can as well just type in Executioner's Rag on YouTube, Todd Perley, P-E-R-L-E-Y, and you can see him, his nimble fingers, performing the song on the piano. And I was just blown away by the the atmosphere that this song created. And I thought, gosh, that's it. That's who I want to start every episode with a bit of this. And I contacted Todd, who is a very, very generous guy, and said, you can use the beginning of the song to start your show. And I've been eternally grateful ever since. And I'm always very happy to point people to to his performance on YouTube. However, he has not ever released his professional recording to the world. I have suggested to him that he release it on iTunes, Spotify, but he is a person who freely admits that he is not a, a friend of technology. Let's just put it that way. So... Listen to him, um, perform it, and write in the comments for him if you like the song and help me encourage him to, to get it out there. And hopefully we can get him to release it in some way or another. And anyone who wants to buy it in all of its full glory can do it. <laughs> all right, on to the theme, and then let's get to the show.
My guest today is Kimberly Tilly. She is the author of the new historical true crime book called The Poisoned Glass. Great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So what inspired you to write this book? Well, I learned about the story a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago. I have a um, a website, a blog called oldspirituals.com. And I try to pull out like old historical stories that have been completely forgotten for the most part. And so I'm always digging around in archives and things, looking for things that I can bring forward and write about. And I found this one and it just caught at my heart, I guess, just because there was a young girl who was murdered in this way. And it wasn't that no one, no one cared or no one loved her. It's just that the people that loved her and that wanted to have justice for her were as powerless as she was. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I mean, this is a story that really is all about social class, about people who have privilege and wealth and people who, who do not and who are taken advantage of. I would definitely agree with that. I think there's the class um, element and the cultural element. Um, there was a lot about the immigration that was happening at the time. There was a lot of immigration at the turn of the century. And Jenny herself was an immigrant from the Netherlands. And just coming into this town where there were the people who had been settled there for many generations. And then you had an influx of people from different countries and different cultures coming in who, you know, just had their own different ways of living. I think that there was almost an inevitable clash. And then there was also the suffragettes and and all of the things that were happening between men and women in those changing dynamics as well. And I think all of those things played a role. Right. So tell us about the crime scene that was discovered on the morning of October 19th, 1900 in Patterson, New Jersey. There was a man who was coming to work that day. It was around 6 a.m. And he was he was walking to work. And as he crossed the bridge, he saw, I think, just a shape. And it didn't it looked too large to be an animal, but it wasn't a rock. And he walked this way every day of his life. So he knew exactly what to expect. And he just saw that there was something different there. And he got closer and walked over and he saw that it was a woman laying there, but she didn't look necessarily like in distress. And he thought at first she might be sleeping and he crouched down beside her. And the only thing that was out of place was her hair. Her hair was in her face and, but she was dressed very neatly and modestly. And um, she, she looked very out of place to be laying on an embankment there, but he reached out and felt her wrist and he realized that she was dead. And he went to, the mill where he worked and they were one of the businesses had a telephone, you know, they, not all businesses had telephones, but theirs did. And they called the coroner's office and, and the coroner came out to check the scene out. What was this area of Patterson, New Jersey like in 1900? So it was a pretty busy area. There was a huge a huge section of the town called Riverside. And that's where a lot of the working class people lived. And often they were doubled up. So there was more than one family living per house. 
and it was very crowded. So a lot of people walked back and forth across this bridge where this man happened to be walking across that morning. And there were also a lot of mills on the other side of the river. So this is the Passaic River kind of makes a ribbon maybe around the city of Patterson. And so when, when you're walking outside the city, you're walking towards the mill and towards the more country area. So he was walking away from the city, but it was still a very populous area. And anyone who would have left a body there would know that it was going to be discovered within a matter of hours. And this man's name was Marinus Gary, right? And he was a delivery driver. Yeah, he was. He was a teamster, so he drove a wagon and, and delivered people's ice to them. And funny thing about him was, from what I can gather about him, he was just sort of a rough, no-nonsense kind of guy. But there was something about the scene that really touched him. And he went back, and he noticed that people were starting to gather around and look at her. And there was just something he just couldn't stand it. So he went back to the stable and got a blanket and put it over her to protect her basically from people looking at her and, and gaping at her basically. Yeah. So how long did it take for authorities to arrive at the scene? It wasn't that long because one of the things that they discovered, um, the coroner's name was Vroom, B-R-O-O-M. And he discovered right away, um, he noticed a few oddities about the crime scene. One was that um, the girl had an injury on her finger. And he also noticed that um, she wasn't wearing any undergarments. And then she had on several layers of skirts. And the innermost layer was damp all over. And, um, you know, they were. he brought a friend with him. And his friend said, well, maybe it's the dew, you know, maybe that's soaked into her clothes. And he was like, well, no, because it would be throughout all three skirts. And it wasn't. It was just this innermost skirt. So right away, there was a little bit of mystery about that. And um, also her hair being down the way that it was. He knew a lot about about the people and the culture in the area. His family had been there several generations. And there were just a, a few small cues like that where he said something isn't right here. And the other thing that he discovered, at first, no one knew what killed her. And when he touched the back of her head, he noticed there was a huge wound back there. And, but he also realized that it wasn't what killed her because it hadn't been bleeding. So if she had been alive when she had gotten this, this head injury, it would have bled everywhere, but it wasn't. And um, he lifted her head a little bit and saw that she was laying on this rock and it was, it had a really sharp end and it was almost like somebody had dropped her directly on the rock after she had died. So how long did it take for authorities to identify her? That was the crazy thing. Although it, it should not have taken very long, maybe to a modern observer, we wouldn't think it would take this long. It did take four days. And I guess for some, for some murder mysteries, I mean, they last for a really long time. But the fact that it took four days to find out what happened to her, given how visible it was, was really kind of scandalous. So she was, she was killed. She died sometime between, you know, maybe 1130 on October 18th and 1am on October 19th. And she had been seen all over town and in different areas with the same small group of men. And even though people were kind of gossiping and whispering about it, people who knew for sure 
who these men were and knew that she had been with them didn't say anything. And it's, it's a little bit remarkable. Finally, one of them came forward on Monday morning and told the police some of the information that they knew. And that's what started the break in the case that eventually solved it. What was that information? Well, it was a doctor. His name was Dr. Townsend. And what he came forward and told the police was that on Friday morning at 2 a.m., there was a huge um, commotion in the street and somebody was knocking on the door and trying to get his attention. So he got up and he went downstairs and there was two men that he recognized. One was named Walter McAllister and the other one was named George Kerr. And both of these men were um, well known in town and um, he knew their families and they were, they were prominent people. And they said that they had picked up this woman who had been in some kind of an accident on the road. And they weren't sure what was wrong with her, but they thought that she needed a doctor. And so he walked outside and he saw a few other men there. He saw a cab driver and um, he recognized this cab. It was quite distinctive. It's a cab as in uh, a horse in a wagon. And it was pretty distinctive. And it, it was at the depot every night. So people from town would have known it. So he saw that there was a woman in this cab. And he got in and he checked her and he realized that she was dead. And so he got back out of the, out of the cab and the men gathered around him and they said, all right, what can we do? You know? And he said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. She's dead. She's been dead for about an hour. And initially they wanted to leave the body with him. And I'm not sure if he had an office somewhere else, but this was his home, you know, where he lived and he did not want them to leave the body there. And so he said, absolutely not, you know, take, take this woman to a hospital or, you know, take her somewhere else. And so they left with her. And then when he saw the coverage in the newspaper, he recognized it was the same woman that he had seen these men with, but he didn't say anything. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he knew who had been with her and that they had been with her after she had died. And he still said nothing, not to the police, not to the media, not to anybody. So this was a pretty sensational story in the newspapers, wasn't it? It was. At the time, there was probably no one in the United States who who read regularly that would not have known about it. It was the first case that was covered, you know, from coast to coast. And um, there were articles about it. This was in Patterson, New Jersey. And there were articles about it in San Francisco and in Honolulu. I mean, everybody was covering it. It was the more that came out about the story, the more salacious it was and the more scandalous it was. And people just got really interested in it and obsessed with it. And eventually, um, when there was a courtroom trial, a lot of them sent reporters to cover it. And most of the people who were actually in the courtroom were, you know, parts of the media from different newspapers across America. But people were just fascinated by, I think, the human interest of it and all of these different intersecting social factors. And one other thing that I think was a draw to the case was that Patterson had been um, a center of anarchy at the time, the anarchist movement. And there was another weaver in the mills, and um, he ended up 
going back to Italy and assassinating the king um, because of some things that had happened to the workers there. And so people already knew the name Patterson and they knew it as a city that bred anarchy and violence. And so I think they were interested in it anyway. And then you hear about this young woman and it's very sympathetic. It's a very sympathetic case, you know, and you can't help but feel for her. But then it seemed like there wasn't going to be much justice for her. It seemed like there wasn't a lot of appetite to pursue a conviction or anything like that. So let's talk a little bit about Jenny, if you don't mind. What did the police learn about her? What kind of life did she lead? She actually, she led a pretty, an ordinary life, I would say. Um, She was 17 years old when she was killed and she worked at a mill in Patterson, um, the Patterson Ribbon Company. So she was born in the Netherlands in 1883, and she was part of a very large family. I think she had 10 brothers and sisters. And um, when, I want to say like when she was maybe five or six, her family lost their money in the Netherlands and eventually decided to immigrate to the United States. And at the time, you know, children ended up working much earlier in their lives than, than they do now and working long, you know, full days work, not for very much money, but they did work like that. So she and her sister both had full-time jobs. I think Jenny had a full-time job when she was 13 and they made about eight or nine cents an hour. And it was really hard to do the math there to see like what the equivalent would be. So the best thing I could find was like how much things cost at the time. So eight cents would buy about two pounds of flour. And I know that the family needed everything that the girls made. So it wasn't like they got to keep a certain amount or anything like that. They gave everything to their parents. And that was how the family got along. I mean, without that money, I don't know what they would have done. So um, that was one thing that the police learned about her. Another thing was that she was very popular. So she the girls liked her in the mills and she had a lot of boyfriends as well. So she had, she didn't have a steady boyfriend at the time, but she was dating a lot of people. And Patterson was, it was very patriotic at the time. I would say there were a lot of parades that would happen and um, they had, you know, political parades and then they would just have like rallies. They would have a fireman's parade. And so she would go to these parade events with different people and, um, There are some conflicting stories, mostly from her family, but I think with her friends, she would occasionally go out to like a pub or something and have a drink. She wasn't a hard drinker by any means or any standard at all, but um, she would have like an occasional drink. Although later her family insisted that she would, she would never touch alcohol. I don't think that was true. They might've wanted it to be true, but I don't think that it was. Other things that they might've learned about her was that she had a friend in town and she would sometimes stay overnight with the friend and her parents were, I would say like kind of permissive. And this became an issue during the trial because it influenced the way that people saw her. And I think that this was just a cultural thing, but her mom and dad would just say like, well, you know what, if you come in after 10, tap on the window and your dad will get up and and he'll let you in because he's a light sleeper. But there wasn't like the girls didn't have a curfew and it wasn't weird if they came in really late. 
And it also wasn't weird if they decided to stay over at their friend's house. And they didn't do that very often. And they seemed to be like very good girls. It wasn't like they were doing anything that they should not be doing. But at the same time, it wasn't perceived like that was a respectable way to live. So those were all things that the police learned about Jenny. And a young woman in 1900, just because she has a lot of boyfriends, doesn't mean she's promiscuous necessarily. Dating, courting during that time period was often pretty innocent. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, When I say boyfriends, she did have like one or two steady boyfriends throughout her life, but she didn't. I think that she saw them as like friends and maybe potentially somebody that she would want to get to know better, but she wasn't, um, she wasn't at all promiscuous. I don't think there was any question as to that. Although later during the trial, you know, some of the defense attorneys tried to paint her in that light, which was really painful for her family to hear that. There are no photographs of her, are there? No. And that was one of like, the disappointments, I think, of of writing this because I looked for so long for a photograph of her. And I found photographs of nearly every other principal person in, in the book. But I think the reason that there aren't any photographs of her are because photographs cost money and they really didn't have any money to spare. And it wasn't like there were... Um, necessarily uh, school pictures or anything like that. You know, she didn't go to school anymore. And there wouldn't really be an opportunity for her to be photographed. Usually the newspapers used, um, you know, a profile picture of her. And even that, I'm not sure how much it looked like her because in the court transcript, they mentioned casually that she had blonde hair. And the the picture, the, the sketch makes her look like a brunette. Yeah, oftentimes during this era, Lower and middle class families would would take family photographs to save money, an economical way to capture everyone's image. Um, But for her social status, with the amount she was probably making, like an individual photograph would have been an incredible luxury, I'm sure. Probably, but you may be onto something else. It could be that her family had a family photograph somewhere but they really didn't want to share that. Maybe they didn't want her image to be out there and have people looking at her and speculating about her. I don't know. I, I, I'm guessing that there just weren't any, but I think that that's definitely another possibility. So speaking of the family, they, they were obviously heartbroken. But did they engage with the press during the investigation or were they standoffish? I think, I think most people would describe them as standoffish, but I don't think that they really meant to be. Her father really didn't speak English very well at all. Um, He was at the first inquest and he had to have a translator. Um, He understood some English words, but I don't think he spoke very much at all. And her mother was much more um, vigorous. She liked to she liked to talk and she learned English and picked it up a lot faster. So typically she would do the talking if somebody needed to. But after Jenny was murdered, she just had a collapse. You know, for a while, she couldn't, she couldn't talk to anybody. She couldn't eat or sleep. And she was like kind of on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And um, 
the press was not nearly as invasive then as they are today. And they also weren't very um, ingenious about getting these jailhouse interviews like maybe they would be today. So there were a couple of jailhouse interviews that were illuminating, but um, not too many, not too many opportunities to contact her family and her sister, I know, like really preferred not to talk about her. I think her sister, Susie, was very close to her. And I think just any kind of mention of it was it would almost like overcome her. She was she was very hurt by it. We will be right back. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we have returned. How did the police find their suspects? How long did it take them to round up the men who they believe did this to her? It was pretty quick. Once, once the doctor had come forward with his information, he only mentioned George Kerr and Walter McAllister. And it was pretty easy for them to track those two down because um, they were very well known in town. Walter actually ran one of the mills that his father owned. So when I say that they were wealthy, I mean, like they really, they have a lot of employees in the town and anything that would have impacted Walter and George and their families would impact a lot of other families in an indirect way, which is something that becomes important later. But um, they very quickly found Walter and they very quickly found George. And they also split up and, and some of them went to locate the cab driver. His name was Augustus Sculthorpe. And Sculthorpe is such an interesting character. I think he's the most interesting character in the book. He was the cab driver um, who took the group around that night. And he was the only real eyewitness to almost everything. And what he said, I think, broadly was true. Like there was evidence to back up that what he said broadly was true. But the details of it would change continually and and not just a little bit. I mean, if somebody asked him a question and he gave them an answer they didn't expect it, they even pushed back a little bit. He would just completely change his answer. So it sort of depended on the other person's reaction is like what the final story turned out to be. So they had those two and they had Skullthorpe and Skullthorpe could tell them the third guy's name, which was William Deeth. And there was one other man, but Skullthorpe didn't know his name and McAllister and Care wouldn't give it up. And so they brought Deeth in for questioning and Deeth is just he was really a contemptible character. He really was. He was not very, he wasn't very bright. He was, I think he was very good looking and he could be somewhat charismatic, but then the way that he would treat people and the way that he would act and just like the lack of feeling, people would very quickly start to drift away from him. And he immediately gave up the fourth man's name, which was Andrew Campbell. And so by 3 a.m. Tuesday, they had all four men in custody um, and they, they had been arrested by them. 
Can you tell us about the families that these men came from? Yeah, absolutely. So Walter McAllister, um, I'll just give you like a quick little bio of each one. Walter McAllister was 30 and um, he was very wealthy. His father owned a brewery. I think that was their main business, but they also owned mills and other businesses and they had a lot of employees. I think Walter had a hundred employees or so at his mill. Um, and he was, he was very smooth. He was, he was kind of clever and he could be very likable, but probably he would be called a sociopath maybe by today's, by today's standards. Um, he just didn't seem to really have any feeling for anybody else. He was very self-centered and self-focused and, um, came from a very old family. He still lived with his father and his sisters, and he was kind of the center of their world. And he had this very good friend named George Kerr. And George was also from money. He was also really wealthy. He was the most politically connected one of them. Um, his brother-in-law was the mayor of Patterson at the time. His cousin was running for the U.S. House of Representatives. And the family was just very politically connected to like the Democratic Party machine that was in Patterson at the time, which was really powerful. And George was different from, from Walter, though. I mean, they were alike in their backgrounds, but in terms of their personalities, they were about as different as they could be. George was 42, so he was, he was a little bit older than Walter. And he had four children at the time and his wife was going to have another baby in, in about a month. And, um, he knew he was going to inherit money and he just, he wasn't very ambitious, but he was really kind. So he had this dead end job at, um, as he was a paint clerk, but he didn't really want to do anything else. And he didn't worry about like having, you know, a big family or anything because he knew he was going to inherit money. And so he was just, he was very easily led by Walter. Walter called all the shots and George kind of followed and, and did what he was told. So those two were really good friends. And the other two weren't really connected to either of them or to each other. So the one guy's name was Andrew Campbell and he was the youngest one. He was 24, I think at the time. And Andrew is, Andrew is definitely, I think one of the more sympathetic figures and it's really unclear how much he was involved with the with the whole crime. He was um, he worked really hard, and he had a job as a clerk. But he he worked his way up. And when his father died a few years earlier, you know, he took over, you know, taking care of his mother and his little brother and little sister, and you know, solved their their financial worries for them. And he lived very frugally so that he could give almost everything to them. And he was universally, everybody really liked Andrew and they really liked George. So those two had a different reputation than Walter. People didn't really like Walter. Um, he was considered to be a bit of a jerk and just pompous, you know, like he was never really, he wasn't shy about telling people how great he was, say it like that. Um, and then the, the fourth guy's name was William Deeth. And I have to tell you, this was one of the original things that caught my eye about this story because his last name is spelled death, D-E-A-T-H, which is, I don't know, it's, a very, it's very strange. But he was uh, 25 years old 
And he was also an immigrant like Jenny, but he had immigrated to the United States from England. And so he had this posh English accent and he dressed really nicely. And um, there is a photograph of him in the book. And he, he does look like he would be pretty good looking, but people who knew him really didn't like him. Um, unlike the others, if he didn't like something, he would just quit his job. And then he would just kind of sponge off of his friends for a long time until they got very sick of it. And then he would get a job for a little bit and then he would quit again. And the other ones at least had more of a work ethic. Like they weren't just going to quit because they had a bad day at work and they didn't, you know, borrow with no intention of ever repaying and stuff like that. And um, Will was kind of known for that stuff. And he had also just gotten married. And I think one of the, one of the important things to know is that Will had been dating Jenny until maybe like six weeks or so before the murder, maybe a little bit longer than that, but then he just disappeared. And then she found out like just a little bit later that he had married somebody else and he'd moved in with his new in-laws. And I'm sure it probably just from learning about him, I'm sure it had something to do with money, partly that he wanted to, you know, maybe they had um, more money where he could rely on it, or maybe he wouldn't have to work, but you know, he was very, he was very money focused. And I'll also say that he wasn't very intelligent either. He seemed really dumb and he would do things that he just didn't pick up on social cues very well. It makes you wonder why Jenny agreed to go out with them socially after she'd been surprised by her former boyfriend's impending marriage. Yeah. And she found out about it after the fact too. But what happened that night was that Jenny had worked all day. It was a Thursday and she went out that evening and her mom was going to run to the drugstore to run an errand. I think she was going to buy baby powder for, for one of the children. And she said, no, I'll do it for you. And I might stay overnight with my friend that lives downtown. And if I do, then I'll just catch the, the other bus and I'll, and I'll get to work that way in the morning. And she went downtown and we know that she made it downtown because her next door neighbor saw her talking to a man he didn't recognize around 930 in front of the drugstore. And um, it turned out that that man was probably deep. And Deep had just seen her on the street and he called out to her. And initially, I think she was very cold to him. Andrew had bumped into Deep somewhere in town and Deep had just kind of ended up, you know, following Andrew and doing whatever Andrew was doing that night. And um, they just happened to meet up with Jenny. So it wasn't like a plan or anything like that. And Andrew knew Jenny well and um, Deep knew Jenny well. So they were all talking together for a little bit. And then Jenny said, you know, I'm going to go into the drugstore. I have to buy something. And when she came back out, Will was talking to her and trying to convince her to go down to the saloon to talk with him. And it turned out that while she was in the drugstore, he had seen Walter McAllister and Walter had seen Deeth talking to Jenny. And he said, you know, we should have a little bit of fun with her later. Why don't you get her to go to Sal's saloon? And so Jenny agreed to go. And I think she still, I think she still liked Deep, you know, just the way that she was acting around him. I think she still did like him and still cared about him. And um, she did end up going to the saloon with him and with Andrew. And then Walter just 
you know, happened to be there, but not really happened. And um, when they went to get their second round of drinks, he spiked Jenny's drink. Jenny was drinking an absinthe and he put uh, chloral hydrate in it. So chloral hydrate was used at the time as a date rape drug. And it's still prescribed today, but it's really powerful. And from what I can learn about it, it sounds like the effective dose and the lethal dose aren't that different. So it would be really hard for somebody with no knowledge of, of a drug like that to, you know, just be able to pour the correct amount into somebody's drink with the, you know, for the purpose of knocking them out that way. But that's how she ended up at the, at the saloon with them was basically, I think she went to talk to Will and then Will and Walter had this plan and Andrew just kind of got dragged along. He didn't really want to be there. And whenever he suggested leaving or tried to leave, they would just, you know, kind of bully him into staying. So who breaks from the group? Who is the most susceptible to police interrogations? Um, Who spills the beans first? Well, I'll tell you, it was Will that spilled the beans first. But I think the other thing to note about that night was that Walter had, um, Walter was actually hanging around with George Kerr that night. And after he and Will cooked up this little plan, he sent George to a hotel by the depot and he said, wait until you get my call. And when you do, hire a cab and bring it to the saloon and, and pick me up. And he called George. So George got involved and um, came with the cab as, as McAllister told him to. So he, he got implicated that way. And as far as how they got caught, how they got busted, once they picked up Will Deef and they came in and brought him in for questioning, Walter had kind of given everybody an alibi. After, after he found out that Jenny had died while she was with them, he was very quick to come up with like, all right, well, we need a cover story. You know, we need to have, we need to have our story straight. And so he gave these guys a cover story and about what, where they had been and what they'd been doing and nothing had to do with Jenny. And maybe they saw her downtown, but they weren't really sure, but basically they denied all involvement. And then Walter actually went back and tried to further cover his tracks by going to the saloon where they had been and, you know, trying to intimidate the saloon owner. And he um, had talked to the cab driver again. He gave the cab driver a huge tip to sort of buy his silence, but then he went back and, and tried to intimidate him a little bit more. So Walter thought, you know, he covered his tracks really well and that nobody was going to find out what they did. But Deeth gave this alibi and the police didn't believe it mostly because they already had some evidence and they'd already talked to the cab driver and they thought they knew what happened and Deeth's story just didn't sound right. And so after he gave the alibi that Walter had told him to give, they said, you know, Deeth, we don't believe you. We don't think that what you're saying is what really happened that night. And he started, he started to like just giggle. And the police talked about it later and they said it, it just gave them the creeps because he just started laughing and, um, and then he just, you know, told them what they, what they had done, which was that, you know, they'd spiked her drink and, you know, they had attacked her at this really remote location. And then they found out that she was dead, but it was, it was pretty funny, you know, like how they had spiked her drink like that. 
And the police were just horrified. And I don't think that Deeth got that. I think Deeth was thinking he was really impressing them with his story. And he wasn't understanding that the police were just appalled by it. Yeah. Ugh. That is really creepy. He is. He's a very creepy character. Yeah. So, obviously, again, as we've already talked about, there is this class difference here at work. And often when young men of, of privileged backgrounds are accused of a crime, they have money for good attorneys. They have potentially connections within the government that can help influence an outcome. Did these things come into play in, in this case? They did. Um, I do think that George's family in particular, George's family couldn't believe he was involved with this. And the truth is that the only people that deep positively implicated were himself and McAllister. He didn't really, he wasn't very specific and Skullthorpe didn't know either if Andrew or George had, how much they had been a part of things, but it almost sounded like they hadn't really been. And George's family never believed it, but it was very hard on them because, um, his father was, you know, he was a very, um, well-known person in their church and his wife was well-known and, and the fact that she was by then eight months pregnant was, was also really, you know, embarrassing and hard for the family. And part of, I think some of the prejudice in the case came from the day after George was arrested, his father came to see him in the jail and his father was like a pretty, a pretty energetic guy. But when he came out of the cell, like, they said his face just looked gray and like he'd lost all of his color and somebody had to come and get him. And then within a couple of days, there were reports that his father was dying and it was the shock, you know, that had, had basically was killing him. And the, the media did go to him and they kind of pressured him a little bit with a story that maybe George had stolen some money at work and his father kind of like, rouse him. And he said, no, you know, whatever else you're saying about him, he's not dishonest. And it was just, I think that people really didn't want to believe that about George or about Andrew, because so many people really knew them and liked them so much. And it did seem improbable that they would be involved with it. However, everybody believed it about McAllister and about Deeth. Nobody was defending those two. So it's kind of funny because Deeth didn't have money and McAllister did, but people were condemning both of them. And then Care had money, but Campbell didn't. And people were supporting both of them. But I think that there was also um, a lot of, it caused a lot of friction in the community. You know, a lot of people, the socialist press in particular, saw Jenny as like, they were basically just saying, well, she's disposable. You know, it's, it was as though she didn't matter at all. Like her life didn't matter. And they were looking at it like, okay, she's like an innocent girl of our own class. Like, what is her crime? Why does, why is this excusable? And it seemed to be the only answer was because she was poor and they were wealthy. And so there was a lot of pushback and there was a lot of argument in the community um, people who had been there for many generations or, you know, had known the families well, 
in general defended the men and the people who were um, working in the mills and were experiencing like completely different kind of reality in Patterson. They were, um, they more thought that they were guilty. And I think that the police right away felt like they certainly thought that the men were guilty. I don't think that they thought that they were equally guilty, but they definitely thought that they were guilty. And so there were a lot of just conflicting um, opinions and forces that were going to weigh in heavily about what ended up being the final thing, you know, what was going to be the consequence of all of this. So the trial, it happened at least a few weeks? Yeah, it was a couple of months. A couple of months after the murder, and all four men pled not guilty, right? They did, but what ended up happening, um, so they were tried in January, and the week before they were to go on trial together, all four of them, Care's attorney ended up getting one of the charges, the murder charge against him dropped. And it was because he wasn't there when McAllister spiked her drink. So they said, you know, technically he can't be held responsible for it. So he was put on trial for rape and the others were put on trial for rape and murder. So that was the big difference. And so they decided not to try care with the others. And um, during the time, the intervening time, so between the end of October and the, you know, mid-January, the only thing that really happened, they had to stay in jail the whole time, not because they were flight risks, but because um, they were afraid that people in the town would, you know, murder them in retribution. And that was really a possibility. I don't know if the men really realized it was a possibility at the time. It seems like they were kind of insulated from a lot of what people were saying, but it definitely was something that was out there. Um, and these types of incidents where, where women were getting killed in this way weren't completely unheard of either. So it wasn't, it wasn't such a shock as it was like, no, this isn't going to happen again. Um, so there was, there was a lot of agitation around that, but they, they were tried in mid January. The other three were tried together and then care was to be tried later. He was to be tried. Um, they were thinking probably like the beginning of February at the time. And the trial only lasted a week, but it was action-packed. <laughs> a little bit about it. I'd say the first day was um, they had their jury selection in 20 minutes. And I was really stunned by that. So I was thinking about the O.J. Simpson trial and how long that took because people were calling this trial the trial of the century. And I was trying to find like, well, what, what would be the parallels with OJ Simpson's trial? Because that was also called the trial of the century. And uh, I think the jury selection took months and I, I actually kept the figure somewhere in the book, but it took months and months. And so the fact that they got through in 20 minutes, part of it was just that things were less complex at the time, but even in the newspapers, they were calling it Jersey lightning because it was so fast. And, um, after jury selection, they had the prosecution brought, you know, most of their witnesses were the first day they had, um, Jenny's mother and, um, her sister and her neighbor that had seen her with beef in the streets. And then they also had, um, the bar owner and they had Skullthorpe. And a couple interesting things about that were that you could already see how the defense was going to operate because of the way that they questioned Jenny's mother. 
you know, there was a lot of, well, so you just let your daughter stay out all night kind of questions and you don't really care where your daughter is at night type of things. And it might've been a little bit more subtle, but not very much. It was, it was obvious that they were trying to paint her as just promiscuous, I guess. And that was not received very well, was it? It wasn't received very well. I don't, I think her mother later, I think her mother was upset about it, but I think at the time, like she was very focused on, you know, getting through the trial. They had to ask her to repeat a few things, you know, there was still a language barrier. So I'm not sure if she understood the implication at the time, but later it bothered everybody. It it especially bothered her family. Um, With Susie, they didn't really, they didn't make a lot of implications that way. And the neighbor was just basically, they just wanted to confirm, you know, what he saw and what time. Um, the bartender was Saul, his Christopher Saul. And he basically just said that he had seen McAllister and he had seen these other men and he couldn't tell Deeth and Andrew apart. Deeth and Andrew kind of looked alike, even though they weren't anything alike, you know, in terms of behavior. But um, he couldn't tell them apart. But the real star was Skullthorpe. Um, and he, he's really just, it was fascinating to read the court transcript. There was no way I could have fit it all in the book because it was just like, it was pages and pages and pages of his testimony. And it was more of the same where when they would ask him a question, I think in a lot of cases, he really didn't notice what was going on, but he would just make up an answer because they asked him. And if they pressed back or said, no, that's not what happened, then he would just completely change his answer. So there was that. And then the other thing was that um, I would say like maybe four or five months before I finished the book, I was able to get the transcript from the inquest, which was really helpful because I could see how people had changed their stories between, um, you know, like a week after the murder happened until, you know, two and a half months later when, when they were actually being tried for it. And Skullthorpe in particular changed his story pretty significantly. Um, mostly by romanticizing what he did, kind of um, softening his role in it. I don't think that he knew what was happening when it was happening, but when it was brought to his attention, he just shrugged it off like, no, this is your problem. I don't want any part of this. So he didn't want to participate. He didn't want anything to do with it, but he didn't stop it. And when when it got to the trial, his testimony was very different. It, it just made him look more innocent. And I think just public opinion and, and media coverage and everything had made him change the way he presented himself. So that was one interesting thing um, that came out during his testimony. The cocktail that Jenny ordered, I believe it was an absinthe frappe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, interesting that absinthe would be considered like a particularly dangerous drink, right? And it was blamed for causing madness, I think. Um, Yeah. France, especially a lot of artists drink it. And, you know, it it had, it's claimed that it had uh, like hallucinogenic, it would make people hallucinate. I'm not being able to say that word right now, but it would make people hallucinate. And a lot of artists said that it would give them inspiration or um, musicians. And so it was, it was considered to be a very dangerous, edgy kind of drink slash drug. And I'm not sure that the one that Jenny had was that potent, 
But one of the things that the defense said throughout the trial is, well, she probably just drank herself to death. But even according to what they were saying, Jenny had three drinks that evening, a cocktail, an absinthe, and a glass of champagne. And it's this is all based on the men's account, which they had every reason to lie. So I think she only really had two drinks. And I don't think that she was that that she was that inebriated from either of them. You talked about this kind of jokingly as being the the crime of the century, which is funny because a lot of topics that I've covered here on this show <laughs> have been considered the crime of the century. Um, but I mean, it was only 1901, so I guess it could well have been the crime of the century since the century was fairly new, right? I guess that's one way of looking at it. I thought it was just a really ambitious title, you know, like I'm sure nothing will happen in the next 99 years that'll compete with this. But I, I think maybe for the century so far, it probably was the crime of the century at the time. But it, it was an odd, it was an odd way to describe it. There were so many elements of it, though, that were just, they were just so terrible. And some of them were just mundane. For instance, um, at the time, it wasn't unusual. If somebody died, usually their body was at home. And they were in their front parlor until, until you know, they were buried. And it also wasn't uncommon for somebody to um, who was murdered to have an autopsy in their own home. But one of the things that was just so brutal about this was just like the casual brutality that people would show. So for instance, um, when, when the doctors came to do the autopsy, they came back. So there was a total of three times that they came back instead of just doing it once they'd be like, Oh, I forgot something. And they would come back and just thinking about like how that would feel to the family. But another thing they forgot to bring, um, jars and like, receptacles if they wanted to take samples or something. So they went to the family and they were like, you need to scald out some jars and, and bring us some jars so that we can, you know, like do this autopsy. And it, it was just terrible. It was just like how casual they were about it and how it didn't, it didn't seem to occur to them, like how, how devastating and how horrible this must've been for her family. And, and some of the other things that happened too, that made the case really just, it would just blow people's minds when they learned about it was that um, on Saturday, so so the men were arrested Monday and the case kind of broke on Monday, but on Saturday, so this is the day after her body was found, uh, McAllister sought out her brother, Leonard Boshieter, and he, he found him in the streets and he was like, hey, I heard about your sister. And Leonard was sort of I don't want to say like grateful, but it was like, he really admired Walter because Walter was so well known and, you know, he was such a sharp dresser and everybody knew him. And I don't know, I think he was just sort of impressed by Walter. So he was really initially grateful that he would come up to him and talk about his sister and ask about her in such a nice way. But he said, you know, if somebody did that to my sister, I would catch the brute and I would kill him myself. You know, it's just the fact that he would do that and he would be that bold to go to the victim's brother and say something like that. Uh, and so when these details started leaking out, um, it was, it really did just, I think, boil people's blood. And then the way that they presented their defense at the trial was similar. I mean, the defense wasn't, you know, like we did this, we did this bad thing, but we also, we didn't mean to kill her. So I think it was obvious they didn't mean to kill her. But um, instead of presenting it like that, they presented it like, well, 
like she was a, um, a promiscuous drunk and they had, you know, happened to notice. And, and so they had gone out of their way as good Samaritans to try to help her and put her on the right path and, you know, take her out. And they were just being very generous to her by, you know, spending their time and money trying to help her, but she was just too far gone. And that really, it angered people a lot that they would talk about Jenny in this way, like after having killed her, you know, albeit unintentionally, that they would talk about her in this way, like that she was just this helpless drunk and that they were these good Samaritans. And even the newspapers commented on it and said that it was just gross. It just sickened them to hear the defense and they couldn't believe that that's how that they wanted to present the defense. The defense really became about like what a bad person Jenny probably was and um, how, you know, something was going to happen to her anyway. That was actually something that the defense attorneys openly said. And they even said things like, you know, we're not here to judge Jenny, but you just have to consider what kind of a person she was. And like her trial wasn't on character, but it was almost like she was on trial for her own murder, the way that they were presenting this. And, um, I think that that was just, it was very hard, even for people who were kind of lukewarm supportive of the men, just listening to the defense was such a turnoff for, for all of them. And the other thing that they did was they blamed Skullport for everything, like the cab driver. And so they said, you know, basically if anything had been wrong, then Skullthorpe could have stopped it and he didn't. So it was either Jenny's fault or it was Skullthorpe's fault, but it wasn't the defendant's fault in any way. Ugh. So they're rather smug, right? As they're sitting there in their own trial, their own trials, watching things unfold. But eventually, those smug faces are wiped clean, right? And the reality of of the situation finally hits them when they get the verdict read to them. It it definitely did, and even though I felt like the the prosecution missed some really key points, for instance. They just took it on faith that the the timeline that the men gave was accurate, even though it it clearly didn't work out. You know that the way that they said um, that they said they had only stopped the carriage for five minutes, but there's more than an hour and a half or so that was missing out of this time. But they did manage to secure a conviction. Um, they were on trial for first degree murder and rape, and they were convicted of second degree murder. And I think the reason for that was because first degree would have meant that they would hang. And there were a few reasons that people didn't want them to hang. One is because a lot of people worked, you know, for those families. And if, if they did get the death penalty, then what were the implications for all of those workers that relied on them? And secondly, um, even Walter himself wasn't popular, but his family was. And um, care was very popular. So people didn't want them to hang. Um, but they did think that they should be punished and, um, they, they were convicted. And after the fact, I would say, I think care got very spooked. He was supposed to be tried separately, but then he very abruptly changed his, his plea to no contest. And so they were all sentenced on the same day. Yeah. So obviously things didn't go well for them. From that point on, they were given pretty lengthy sentences when it was all over. How did they fare in prison? They wrote, 
I'm not even going to try to, I'm not even going to try to convey it, but they wrote the most incredible letter I think I've ever read in my life the day after they were convicted and they sent it out to, I guess, I don't know if the AP existed then, but they sent it out and it was published in newspapers all over the country. And it was just their view of what had happened to them and um, how they saw themselves as, as victims. I think they might've even used that word, like we're the victims here. And um, Jenny's family was, I think initially they were very upset that they didn't get a first degree conviction, but then they, after just a few days, they were like, you know, it's better for them to go to prison for a long term. And they were shipped up to Trenton, New Jersey, to the state prison. And they were there for a good length of time. And all of those political connections that they had, they really didn't abandon these men, but it didn't do them a bit of good. So there was so much public feeling and so much anger against these men, because even though they had some support in the town, 